0: Good Saturday morning. You're listening to Asset Protection today with Attorney Bill Alexander here on News Radio 680 WPTF. I'm Jason Kong, and Bill. Uh, good morning to you. You're you're playing hurt today, but we appreciate you stepping up and giving us the great advice that you well, always do. G-
1: good morning, Jason. I uh, I know uh, you know what what you've referred to is the fact that I've been under the weather for the last couple of weeks. I uh, when I was trying to take care of my brother. Uh, he shared with me unfortunately <laughs> uh, uh, something going around the community and and uh, it's it's been uh, pretty tough in terms of uh, just getting over a, a pretty pretty rough cough and that sort of thing but I, I think uh, you know obviously the listeners don't have to deal with that so we're 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 good to go.
0: That's right. Don't don't kiss your radio right now because Bill might go. give you a little remnant of something. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, we uh, we've got an interesting show lined up today, and we're going to get into a favorite subject of yours. Well, I don't know if it's a favorite subject, but a popular subject of yours, and that's power of attorney.
1: Well, you know, it's the kind of thing where you know, folks, uh, an old expression is, uh, uh, "Do as I say, and and not as I do." um in terms of just good advice but you know oftentimes um good advice goes in one ear and out the other and uh you know the the problem for most of us is that we're not good listeners Uh, you know we're good talkers but we're not good listeners (laughs) and and that's a problem you know we need to focus on listening and processing it and and then doing something about it uh And one of the things that I have talked about for years uh, is the fact that uh, seniors need documents that are different from uh, most younger people. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, you know, all documents as it relates um, to legal documents when it comes to estate planning, uh, for the most part— are documents you hope you don't have to pull out and and you hope that that the person you've chosen to help take care of things for you that they never have to that you're always in control and that you always have the ability to manage your affairs and take care of things but we know that that's not true for at least half of us mm-hmm. that uh, we do at some point we do need assistance well uh Truthfully, most uh, folks who have health care documents, those documents typically will work. And that's true whether they're done in another state. Most of the time, it's always good to have them reviewed. But, you know, even healthcare care documents done 25 years ago, for the most part, will still work. They may not work quite as well as the newest documents, but they still work work. They, uh, Particularly if you have appointed an agent to make decisions for you, that'll work. But the document that frequently doesn't work for seniors is the general durable power of attorney, sometimes called a business power of attorney uh, or a financial power of attorney. Same thing. But the problem is that people believe wrongly. That if they have any old general durable power of attorney, because it is a, quote, general power, that they can do anything that needs to be done. Anything that needs to be done. And that's not true at all. You know, uh, a number of years ago, I was invited to do a Sunday school class uh, at a wonderful church, a large group, uh, Sunday school was about a hundred people. It was, it was really a nice a group. And most of the people there were seniors or getting near retirement, if you will, my age group, uh, <laughs> or older, a wonderful group. And they asked me to talk about elder law issues and documents and things like that. And of course, I emphasized during the lesson that uh, the general power of attorney needed to be very robust, very powerful. If, if a person has a trusted uh, agent, which is normally a spouse or a child, mm-hmm. that they can depend upon to uh, do what's in their best interest at all times. They don't have to worry about them stealing from them or anything like that. Uh, and not everyone has an agent like that. But for those who do, they need to give them an extraordinarily powerful or robust power of attorney so that if things turn bad for you in the future, then an asset protection plan can be put in place for you at a later time. And that's the key. You know the Now, what's really funny is the fact that, as soon as I finished, you know they wanted me to end up about ten minutes before the period was over, and the reason I found out later, the reason they did, was because at the end of the program they handed out form, uh, what's called a short form, general durable power of attorney. That they were, uh, there were several attorneys from the attorney general's office uh, there, and they wanted to surprise everybody and to help everybody, or at least what they thought was helping everyone. By giving them the general durable power of attorney that's called the short form power of attorney. Well, that's the very power of attorney that I tell folks will not work for asset protection planning. And so they had everybody lined up and doing these uh, powers of attorney for them and they were notarizing them for them and being just as wonderful as uh, uh, people as they could be but they were giving them the wrong documents. And I mean, I had just gotten through with my sermon and they were ignoring exactly what I had said. (laughs) That's a boost to the ego. (laughs) Yeah, and, and it was like, I was just shaking my head. It's like, did you listen to what I had to tell you? And it was like, you didn't get it. So, yeah, I mean, they were trying to be helpful. And of course having a power of attorney uh, you know having even a bad one a short form power of attorney is better than not having any power of attorney at all and some of the folks there had no power of attorney but the, you know the this was the very group of folks that should have been looking at a robust very powerful power of attorney with good advice as to how to set it up and you know, and the problem is this, most people think, well, I've got a power of attorney. I'm cool. I've got it knocked. I, you know, I don't need anything else. An attorney drafted this up for me or gave it to me, and I'm good to go. And that's that's the problem is or that's one problem that we run into every day is that if people just had better basic documents, they could do so much more, for a lot less money, if and when they actually need those documents to be used.
0: Yeah, that's a big key because hey, who wants to spend more money on a useless document?
1: That well, and it's it, like I said, it's not useless. So I, there is some value to it. But a short form power of attorney, and that's the that is the power of attorney. That most attorneys give their clients, whether they're 20 years old or 90 years old, that's what most attorneys use. And they're great for transactions. You know, you need to sell the house, sell the truck. They'll work for that. They enter into a contract, but will they allow you to do asset protection planning, which is make? You know, creating irrevocable trusts, creating certain types of revocable trusts, funding those trusts, defunding those trusts, amending those trusts. Those are the kind of things that a short form will not allow you to do. Yeah. And that doesn't help
0: you in the realm of asset protection.
1: Right. Well, some asset protection is really pretty simple when you get right down to it. The, uh, for instance, for a married couple... The number one asset protection thing we do, it's real simple, is we transfer ownership of the house from both spouses, which is true about 99.99% of the time, to the healthy spouse. You know, Mm -hmm. particularly if we're getting the unhealthy spouse on Medicaid or uh, where we have to worry about things, we're going to transfer the house. Well, guess what? A short-form general power of attorney will not allow you to transfer or gift the house from one spouse to the other. Won't do it. It, it just, doesn't, I mean, that's the limitation. There are right. simple things that you think you have the ability to do because it's a general power of attorney, and it just doesn't. You see, the, the real problem with the short form is that it has a bunch of one-liners and if you read the one-liner, you think you have the authority. But that's not what a short form does. It refers to a big paragraph in the general statutes, and the paragraph is where all the limitations are. So, for instance, the short form might said you can make gifts, but the statute says you can't make a lot of gifts. You can make certain gifts. You can make gifts that have historically been made that are not— uh, um, And so, uh, the bottom line is: is even though it looks like it'll work, it actually is prohibited. And so,
0: it, it's easy to see why people would fall into that trap. Uh,
1: quick break and back. You're listening
0: to Asset Protection today with Attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio 680 WPTF. You're listening to Asset Protection today with Attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio 680 WPTF. Good morning to you. I'm Jason Kong and. We, uh, we just wrapped up talking about uh, the durable power of attorney, and Bill, we're going to get into even more asset protection here because this is, well, it's not, ju- not just the name of the show, but it's, it's something that you specialize in and something that's pretty key for a lot of people. But I guess we need to figure out how do we get there and, and what to do from there.
1: Well, you know, part part uh, another piece of asset protection is how do you use your documents properly? And, and one of the The topics that have come up recently, and I know I've talked about it, is contracts where you're signing uh, for someone else. And one of the big contracts that people run into is the contract with the assisted living or the nursing home. And uh, it's rarely the patient who is signing that document. It might be the hospital uh, where you have to sign documents. But if you're the agent you should always sign as the agent. In other words, sign the, your, the, the loved one's name, the one that, that you're doing this for. You sign their name by your name as the power of attorney or attorney in fact. And a lot of these contracts say responsible party. Uh, sometimes they say guarantor. And if you just sign your name, then you're basically saying I'm liable for this bill. And if you sign it the right way, you're not liable for the bill. In other words, you're you're basically saying the patient is liable for the bill. So, you have to be real careful about how you sign. And it's you know, it it seems obvious, but if you are the agent, you don't just sign your name. You sign the ward's name or your loved one's name, uh, the one you're acting for, and then you sign your name as power of attorney. Uh, and you can either use POA or AIF, which means attorney in fact, um, as opposed to attorney at law. And so that's uh, – so As partially is how do you use that document. And Now – I, I did a seminar uh, f- for uh, 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 a lot of businessmen in the Triangle uh, a couple years ago. Uh, it, was a, it was a big to do, had a lot of sponsors, and it was wonderful. Um, in fact, WPTF was one of the sponsors, and we appreciated that. But uh, I, I asked the group of businessmen and women. Um, How many of you have, uh, you know, your businesses are incorporated? In other words, you operate as a corporation. And, you know, about two-thirds of them raised their hands. And I said, well, I've got bad news for you. I said, I I would lay a wager, and I don't bet, uh, that uh, half of you have no asset protection as it relates to your corporation. And I you know, all of these uh, eyes were looking up at me, and they enlarged, and it was like, "What do you mean?" <laughs> <laughs> so, well, here's the problem: um, most small business people, uh, even medium-sized companies at times, uh, they're they're incorporated, but their corporate book sits on a shelf somewhere, gathering dust. They haven't looked at that book in ten years. And the problem is, and now they they pay the Secretary of State their $200 every year. And so they know that there's still a valid corporation as it relates to that. But what so many business people don't realize is that a corporation requires that it be operated a very specific way. And it requires things that most business people don't think about. In other words, most business people think once you've got your incorporation documents, that's it. That's all you need. And you've got limited liability because of the fact that you're operating in a corporation and that that, those legal responsibilities are done. And then you just open your bank account and operate your business and just go on your merry way. Well, the problem is this. A corporation requires – requires – In order for it to be a valid corporation, it's got to have a meeting of the shareholders every year. Every year. Now, somebody who is a sole proprietor, in other words, a person who is a one-person owner or maybe a married couple, a two-person owner, they're thinking, well, that's silly. Okay, it's silly, but it's still required. (laughs) So the shareholder has to meet – and elect a board of directors and guess what the board of directors are required to meet at least annually okay now the board of directors do two things they set policies for the corporation and they also hire the officers of the corporation so in essence the board of directors appoints the president and the secretary and the treasurer or the CEO or any other officer that's gonna act on behalf of the corporation. And the board of directors sets the salaries, the benefits, if there's any major decisions, uh, typically that are long-term type of decisions like taking on debt, uh, those kind of things. The board of directors are the ones who actually make those decisions, and guess what? Those decisions should be in writing in the corporate book, okay? Well, you know, the the fact of the matter is is that most people don't even know where their corporate book is, <laughs> uh, and so uh, g- guess what? If if you ever if you're in that boat and you haven't updated your corporate books, um, the bottom line is an attorney who is suing you. And let's say you don't have enough liability insurance. You think you're covered because you have a corporate uh, status. Well, they can actually sue to determine if you have operated like a corporation. And if you have not operated in accordance with the law, guess what they do? It's what we call piercing the corporate veil. Hmm. In other words, that allows the creditor to sue you personally so that you don't have the Uh, the asset protection that you thought you had by operating as a corporation. Because just because you say you're a corporation doesn't mean that you're operating as a corporation. So they can lift the corporate veil and sue you personally under those circumstances. That should give people rise. Now, I'm not asking people to come to my office and let me you know, uh, get their books in order. That's not, you know, that's really not the kind of thing I I normally do in our practice. But, but I am saying to the business community out there, this is an important issue that you need to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And let's say you it's been 10 years and you haven't even opened your corporate book. You can go back and fill it in. I mean, there's nothing wrong with, with that kind of thing. And of course the other thing is uh, with any kind of business you you don't go to the grocery store and buy your groceries for home out of your business account you know that's that's a, the the other thing so it's not a, just a matter of having your documents it's also a matter of operating as a legitimate business and a legitimate business doesn't go to the grocery store and pay for groceries for home out of the out of the company book or out of the company checkbook
0: yeah, that's uh, always a good recommendation and always good rules to follow. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll continue to talk about asset protection in just a bit. Hang around. You're listening to Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander. You can find more about him at WGALaw.com. You're listening to News Radio 680, WPTF. Welcome back to asset protection today with attorney bill alexander i am jason kong and we're uh, we're having a fun discussion today well i don't know about fun uh i'm having fun i hope you are too it's at least informative at the very most and we've got bill alexander here with us and uh we've been talking about asset protection in general and bill you Sort of went over the uh, idea of how corporations need to pay attention to their book,
1: right? And if a corporation is operated properly, then you've got great asset protection. Uh, a- at least you're operating as a limited, uh, with limited liability, uh, which is helpful. In other words, if your corporation gets sued, then the creditor cannot reach your personal assets, your investments uh, that you and your wife might have, or your home uh, or anything else in your name personally, they can only reach corporate uh, assets. So now that brings me to uh, the entity, the limited liability entity that I like and is my preference most of the time, not every time, but most of the time I like uh, an entity called a limited liability company Um, That also gives you limited liability the same way a corporation does, although it actually has some additional benefits that a corporation doesn't have. And uh, so what are those nice things that I like about an LLC? Well, um, uh, first of all, it's easier. It doesn't – now, it costs exactly the same. You still pay the Secretary of State $200 a year to keep your entity going from year to year in North Carolina. Um, But you don't have all of those corporate requirements that we just talked about that can make a corporation fail. So you don't have shareholders. You don't have annual meetings of shareholders or board of directors or the like. Um, uh, You do have an operating agreement, and you still have to operate as a business. In other words, you don't go to the grocery store out of your Mm -hmm. LLC account. But at the same time, you don't have many of the little things that can uh, mess up a a corporate uh, situation. So an LLC is an easier entry uh, to operate in. Uh, One of the other nice things about an LLC is you don't have some of the capitalization limitations that a corporation does. Uh, When a corporation is done... Um, the ownership of the corporation is based solely up, uh, by how much money did you contribute and and how much is that a part of the, of the total? Um, and but with an LLC, you can actually capitalize your company any way you want. In other words, uh, like uh, it, like many, many partnerships are done, in a different kind of way. And, and so you might have one person who puts in more cash and another person who puts in more sweat equity. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not uncommon. Well, in an LLC, you can actually uh, make that work in terms of ownership interest, and you can't do that with a corporation. And then the other thing about an LLC, it gives you the same limited liability that a corporation does with one additional limited liability uh, aspect that's wonderful. And that is that a creditor is limited uh, exclusively. Their exclusive remedy is to get a charging order against the LLC. So let's say that a legitimate creditor has sued you uh, for $10,000 and they get a judgment against your LLC for $10,000. Well, The only thing they get is a charging order, which basically means when the profits are distributed in an LLC each year, then your creditor would get the profits that would normally be distributed to you, okay? In other words, they get the K-1 distribution. Mm -hmm. But guess what? Um, they don't get any voting rights. They can't control the management of the LLC, nor can they go after any of the property inside the LLC. So let's say you have um, a rental house or a farm inside your LLC. The creditor can't make you sell your house or your farm inside the LLC. All they can do is take the profits. And the other thing is they can't control the management. And one of the things about most LLCs and most S-Corps, they're what's called pass-through entities. So you are taxed on the profits of the, corp- uh, of the LLC or corporation, whether you distribute those profits or not. In other words, you can retain your profits inside the company and and use those to expand your business or whatever you want to do, but you still have to pay the income tax each year on that profit. Well, guess what? If you're a creditor uh, there and the LLC manager decides not to distribute the profits that year but instead retain them, who gets the K1? The creditor. Hmm. So in essence, the creditor receives t- a tax on in other words, as though they the money was distributed to them, but they don't get any money. So they're having to pay tax on phantom income. Now that's a double insert a, a, a double um, uh, uh, whammy, if you will, to a creditor, sure. Um, and so a lot of sophisticated creditors will not take a charging order so, Again, that makes an LLC, to me, a stronger entity than even a corporation because of that exclusive remedy against an LLC. That's a pretty big thing. Yeah, that
0: sounds pretty huge. Are there any real glaring downsides to an LLC? It sounds like- Not really. If if you have the choice between the two, LLC seems to make a lot more sense.
1: Right. Uh, There is one difference, um, and that is that a multi-member LLC is a stronger entity than a single member LLC as it relates to asset protection uh, protection at least in in one playing field and and that is that I have in federal bankruptcy I have never seen anywhere where a multi-member LLC, uh, is um, uh, pierced because of one member of the LLC who's, who has filed bankruptcy. Um, I have seen single-member LLCs uh, in some jurisdictions, not North Carolina, but in some jurisdictions I have seen single-member LLCs pierced by a bankruptcy judge as an um, uh, alter ego. Uh, of the credit uh, of the debtor Mm -hmm. if you will so it uh, you know and a federal judge is a pretty powerful fella Uh, so it's uh, it's uh, they can do an awful lot but I've never seen them do it with a multi-member now when I say multi-member that can be husband and wife Um, you know that's a multi-member or uh, or it can be a family as opposed to you know different individuals yeah very good
0: well stick around. You're listening to Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander here on News Radio six eighty WPTF. You're listening to Asset Protection Today on News Radio six eighty WPTF with Attorney Bill Alexander. Find more about him at WGA dot com. You can also find him tomorrow morning on the CW twenty two with his television show at eight AM called Money Secrets and Bill this is a another fine way to get information, valuable information from you.
1: Well, I, I appreciate you mentioning that. I have a fun fun time on both shows, and uh, would would recommend that folks uh, check it check it out, and see if they can't find some jewels on that show as well. Um, but I, I wanted to continue. Uh, okay, so we've we've chosen an entity, either an LLC or a corporation. Uh, Both are excellent. Obviously, they give you a lot uh, of um, protection that operating as a sole proprietor or as a partnership would not give you protection uh, from outside creditors. Uh, or or issues that where people can sue. I mean, what you're really trying to do is to prevent them from getting your personal assets when they're suing you for a business reason. Um, Now, uh, in terms of how that works into a a true asset protection plan, the foundation or the cornerstone of uh, other than having an entity like what we've just mentioned is having good liability insurance. And a lot of folks have never heard of umbrella coverage, but you need good personal insurance and you need business insurance as well. And and that's something that is critical uh, for uh, everyone. Uh, But a lot of folks don't have enough uh, liability protection. They just think a little bit is is enough. They don't want to pay the additional premium, but liability insurance is very inexpensive. And an umbrella coverage, I mean, what that does, I mean, if you don't understand umbrella, it normally means that you would have your car insurance, and that's where your biggest risk lies, and your homeowner's insurance, and any other type of insurance, uh, boat insurance or whatever, um, with the same company, and then you ask the company for an umbrella policy. So let's say that your car insurance is like $500,000. and then you ask for an umbrella that takes the five hundred thousand dollars up to two million. Well, the cost of doing that is is minuscule, and is well worth doing it. Now, years ago, I would recommend a million dollars umbrella. Today, I recommend $2 million from almost all families except for extremely wealthy families. Um, you know, uh, $2 million, I think, does adequately protect, but you do hear about million-dollar judgments today. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not unheard of uh, at all, and so having that extra million dollars, I think, does give one adequate uh, protection. Uh, But it's called an umbrella policy, and it's something everyone should, in fact, have. Really, really important. Okay, so now you've got your liability insurance in place. That's your foundation stone. You've got your asset protection entity. You've got your limited liability company or corporation. So what else is there? What else can you do? Well, let me also... um, make sure that I bust a myth there are an awful lot of folks that think a revocable trust gives you the person who's created the trust asset protection it does not not at all it's a wonderful tool that can be used to give your family asset protection at your death you know your spouse and your children but while you're alive it gives you zero asset protection Um, and and uh, there are an awful lot of folks who who think otherwise that it does give you some amount of asset protection it gives you none whatsoever it does make your creditors go through one extra step but it's still there and and at your death In North Carolina, the Uniform Trust Code here basically says that assets in a revocable trust are subject to your creditors at your death. So, in other words, the executor reaches into the revocable trust assets and gets enough money to pay all the debts at your your death. So, um, uh, that's important. However, an irrevocable trust can be used to further asset protection to give you further asset protection but in North Carolina you have to be very careful about how that is done in terms of what it does for you and what this means is at least in North Carolina at this point in time unlike a few other states my favorite being Tennessee in North Carolina, you cannot create an effective, what's called a self-settled asset protection trust. In, in other words, you can't just put your property into an irrevocable trust that you've created for yourself, for your benefit, and at work in North Carolina. In other words, that's called a self-settled trust trust. Now, for instance, a revocable trust is a self-settled trust. In other words, you're the creator of the Mm -hmm. trust. You appoint yourself as the trustee and you appoint yourself as the beneficiary. Well, if you make that an irrevocable trust in North Carolina, that will not work. Uh, In other words, it will not give you the asset protection that you think it does. Uh, In other words, like a corporation, it can be pierced. Mm Uh, just by the allegation that it's a self-settled trust because we don't recognize in North Carolina self-settled, irrevocable asset protection trusts. Uh, so the courts can basically pierce that. However, you can create out of your own funds or your own property um, a, a, a asset protection trust for your spouse while you're alive, or your children or grandchildren while you're alive. You can do that, but it has to be, in other words, you have to create the trust yourself. Your spouse cannot be involved in the creation of that trust. And you have to fund it with property that's owned exclusively by you. In other words, you can't create a trust for your spouse and then transfer the house that's owned by both of you into that trust that that doesn't work either you know you have to fund it with with property that's exclusively owned by you so there's um there uh, now irrevocable trusts uh can be done with good tax planning and it's really important because this is where even if folks know the basic rules they can really mess up their taxes if they don't do it right because you can create an irrevocable trust where it's retained in your estate uh, for estate tax purposes so that it gets a step up in income tax basis at your death. You can even create it where the grantor continues to pay the income tax uh, taxes for the benefit of the beneficiaries. Uh, typically, when you create an irrevocable trust, the beneficiaries are responsible for the income tax. So there are a lot of different variables that you can use with irrevocable trust, but it also, you have to understand when you do things that are irrevocable that it, you know, it's asset protection versus uh, retaining flexibility and control. Um, Those are really important to folks and most people don't want to give up the flexibility and control but then there are others who much prefer to have the asset protection so that they can sleep at night so right. but if you do it it has to be done right and that is something that we do in our law office and we do it well
0: yeah and that uh, you know you, you mentioned that and it seems yeah i was kind of overwhelmed with that so i think if if anyone is considering this or needs some advice please go to wgalaw.com and uh, get a hold of bill because you know, you may talk to a family member who lives in another state, as you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. The, the ball game could be completely different there, and that may work for them. And then you try and set that up in North Carolina, and suddenly, uh, it's
1: not going to work for you. It doesn't work. You're exactly right. And then there's one more level of asset protection, and it really just depends on how you know how far do you want to go down this road. But you can also create uh, asset protection, irrevocable trusts that move offshore. And yes, that does get a little pricier, but it is also extraordinarily effective. I have really never seen a creditor effect- effectively get into an offshore trust. Um, now, uh, and, and I'm part of what's called an Asset Protection Council, which is a national, fairly small national organization that can do those very things. Now, some people think, oh, offshore, that must be illegal. There's a stigma to it. Well, the truth is there's nothing illegal about it at all. Uh, where people get in trouble is they get in trouble by not properly filing their income tax returns. You know, it's sort of like, well, we've made a lot of money offshore. Let's keep that secret so we don't have to pay tax. That's tax fraud. That is illegal. And that will put you in jail or it certainly gets you in hot water. So we don't recommend that. <laughs> but but uh, as long as you report your income taxes properly each year, there's absolutely nothing wrong with having an offshore trust. And one of the things that make it so difficult for creditors is, quite frankly, if, if they sue you offshore, most of these offshore trusts will move from one jurisdiction to another jurisdiction. So by the time the creditor, if they can get a judgment against you in that jurisdiction, the, the assets are moved by the time they get the judgment and, it's, and it doesn't do them any good. And so again, sophisticated creditors stay away from um, those kinds of jurisdictions because they know, uh, I mean, who wants to throw good money after bad uh, trying to chase <laughs> down a, 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 a debtor who's not going to pay? So it's, um, you know, uh, there are techniques that work extremely well. But here's another rule that's really important. You got to do these things when you're not in hot water. In other words, you can't wait until somebody sues you, and then let's go see somebody about asset protection planning because we, you know, now we're worried about it. Uh, you have to do these kind of plans when everything is fine. Uh, that's that's uh, one thing that's really important about the concept of asset protection planning.
0: Yeah, we talked earlier about the concept of, of good advice going in one ear out the other. Make sure this stays in the ear. Uh, don't let it go out the other ear. You know, if if this applies to you you really need to get on the ball as bill said because uh again it doesn't help you if you're already being sued a quick break and back you're listening to asset protection today with attorney bill alexander on news radio 680 wptf you're listening to asset protection today with attorney bill alexander on news radio 680 wptf and bill you've uh, i feel like you've taught us you've managed to cram what felt like two hours of information into one it's very impressive on your
1: part well i appreciate that it's a lot of fun and it's what it's all about um you know asset protection is important to folks and there are some really good ways to do it for seniors we can protect assets uh and and uh, it's really important to have asset protection planning as any part of long-term care planning because you, you certainly want to be able to retain your assets for your family. And that's what we do. And that's something we bring to the table that most others don't. So we would encourage you to come see us. Wgalaw.com is the website. You
0: can also catch Bill tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. on the CW22 with his television show, Money Secrets. We will be here next week. We hope you will, too. You're listening to Asset Protection Today on News Radio 680 WPTF.